sé que todo el mundo dice que tiene un chaleco a prueba de bala. I ain't gonna eat, I ain't gonna sleep Ain't gonna breathe till I see what I wanna see And what I wanna see is you go to sleep in the dirt Permanently, you just being hurt This ain't gonna work for me It just wouldn't be sufficient enough Cause we are just gonna be enemies As long as we breathe Welcome to God's Open Today on God's Open, we are gonna be talking about Rules for Radicals now, this is actually a book that uh, has inspired a lot of uh, social revolutions. It's how do you create a movement, sustain a movement, hire people, and recruit people for that movement in order to drive social change. So this is not a book about, this This is more a book about practicality than it is about ideology. And so Rules for Radicals is written by a leftist, but a lot of the things that it talks about is Oh, I got a naked baby running here. Come here, little boy. <laughs> okay, bye, baby. Um, so a lot of things it talks about is is how to how to ferment this revolutionary mindset. And so uh, there's a, a certain part of this book which talks about it, it inspiring people to act and, and convincing them to do stuff, um, getting them to do the things you want to do. And it goes out of its way to point out you don't appeal to piety. If they're Christians, you don't uh, appeal to, oh, Jesus would have wanted you to do this. And I think it's in, in this very section, it talks about appeal to their self-interest, appeal to the interests of themselves and of the church. So I'm going to go ahead and hit play. And uh, I, I think I'm right on that spot. Rules for Radicals, the whole audiobook is available on YouTube. His life savings, about $2,300. He took this money out in $5 bills. Armed with his bundle of $5 bills, he went down to the poorest section of New York City, the Bowery. This was before the time of urban renewal. And every time a needy-looking man or woman passed by him, he would step up and say, please take this. Now, the difference between this situation and mine around the Biltmore Hotel is that the panhandlers on the Bowery would not find an offer of money or of a bowl of soup outside their experience. At any rate, our friend attempting to live a Christian life and emulate St. Francis of Assisi found that he could do so for only 40 minutes before being arrested by a Christian police officer. So right here it's talking about you have to approach people within their frame of mind, their frame of experience. And so he did the same experiment in a rich part of the, a neighborhood. If you go watch any Mark Dice videos where he's offering people a chocolate, chocolate bar or a bar of silver, nobody takes the bar of silver. If it was me, I'd be like, I'll take that bar of silver. Thank you. It's like worth 40 to 60 bucks or something like that. And everyone's like, oh, I'll take the Hershey's bar instead because they just don't know how to be, how to handle a situation when which someone's just offering them a bar of silver. They don't even know what to do with the bar of silver. It's outside their frame of reference. So they're they're making bad choices because it's outside that experience. But this transitions pretty quickly into the, the convincing God episode within the Bible. And he actually uses the Bible. Driven to Bellevue Hospital by a Christian ambulance doctor and pronounced non compos mentis by a Christian psychiatrist. Christianity is beyond the experience of a Christian professing but not practicing population. In mass organization, you can't go outside of people's actual experience. I've been asked, 
for example, why I never talk to a Catholic priest or a Protestant minister or a rabbi in terms of the Judeo-Christian ethic or the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. I never talk in those terms. Instead, I approach them on the basis of their own self-interest, the welfare of their church, even its physical property. Yeah, so th this applies to real life as well. Don't uh, appeal to somebody's moral instincts. You should do this because that's the right thing to do. You appeal to them based on something that will give them value. If you do this, then people will see you do this, and then they will uh, associate you with this good thing. You'll create goodwill for yourself. Approach them by their own self-interest. If I approached them in a moralistic way, it would be outside their experience because Christianity and Judeo-Christianity are outside of the experience of organized religion. They would just listen to me and very sympathetically tell me how noble I was. And the moment I walked out, they'd call their secretaries in and say, if that screwball ever shows up again, tell him I'm out. Communication for persuasion, as in negotiation, is more than entering the area of another person's experience. It is getting a fix on his main value or goal and holding your course on that target. Okay, so so just keep that in mind. Persuasion, negotiation is not about just like having dialogue with someone. Is It's about probing that person to figure out their wants and desires and aligning what you want with their individual goals. This this is this is incredibly critical. This is incredibly critical for the Bible and for God. So let's see what he says here. You don't communicate with anyone purely on the rational facts or ethics of an issue. The episode between Moses and God, when the Jews had begun to worship the golden calf, is revealing. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go, get thee down. Thy people, which thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt, hath sinned. They have quickly strayed from the way which thou didst show them. And they have made to themselves a molten calf, and have adored it, and sacrificing victims to it, have said, These are thy gods, O Israel, that have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And again the Lord said to Moses, See that this people is stiff-necked. Let me alone, that my wrath may be kindled against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of thee a great nation. But Moses besought the Lord his God, saying, Why, O Lord, is thy indignation enkindled against thy people, whom thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Let not the Egyptians say, I beseech thee. He craftily brought them out, that he might kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the earth. Let thy anger cease, and be appeased upon the wickedness of thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou sworest by thy own self, saying, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and this whole land that I have spoken of I will give to your seed, and you shall possess it forever. And the Lord was appeased from doing the evil which he had spoken against his people. Exodus 32, 7-14, Douay Rhymes Edition. Moses did not try to communicate with God in terms of mercy or justice when God was angry and wanted to destroy the Jews. He moved in on a top value and outmaneuvered God. 
It is only when the other party is concerned or... So here, here's a radical leftist, and uh, he's just using normal terms for, for what he sees in this cross-dialogue between God and Moses in Exodus 32. He says that Moses outmaneuvered God. So I, I do think that's interesting terminology that he uses. I think it is accurate. What is Moses doing? Uh, exactly what we already discussed. You're you're appealing to someone's own internal value structure for the reason why they want to do something. You're appealing to something that they want. They're, you're appealing to their self needs in order to get them to change and realign. Moses understands that God has wants and desires, and God's trying to or and Moses is trying to align God's desires with his desires through negotiation. That's what's happening here. Moses is trying to convince God to do what God wants in God's own self-interest. Or feels threatened that he will listen. In the arena of action, a threat or a crisis becomes almost a precondition to communication. A great organizer like Moses never loses his cool as a lesser man might have done when God said, Go, get thee down. Thy people, whom thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt, hath sinned. At that point, if Moses had dropped his cool in any way, one would have expected him to reply, Where do you get off with all that stuff about my people, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt? I was just taking a walk through the desert, and who started that bush burning, and who told me to get over to Egypt, and who told me to get those people out of slavery, and who pulled all the power plays and all the plagues, and who split the Red Sea? And who put a pillar of clouds up in the sky, and now, all of a sudden, they become my people? But Moses kept his cool, and he knew that the most important center of his attack would have to be on what he judged to be God's prime value. As Moses read it, it was that God wanted to be number one all through. So how many people read that passage, Exodus 32, and think, uh, look at Moses' skilled negotiation? People try not to think in that terms because those are presuppositions that we bring to the Bible, that this is not a negotiation, that this is all pre pretext, but that's not actually what's being written in the story. Moses is negotiating. He's using calm, cool, collected reasons, appealing to God's self-interest to get God to change his mind. That's exactly what's happening here. Moses is using persuasion techniques on God. And, and they're working. They're working. Through the Old Testament, one bumps into, There shall be no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship false gods. I am a jealous and vindictive God. Thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. And so it goes on and on, including the first part of the Ten Commandments. Knowing this, Moses took off on his attack. He began arguing and telling God to cool it. At this point, Trying to figure out Moses' motivations, one would wonder whether it was because he was loyal to his own people or felt sorry for them, or whether he just didn't want the job of breeding a whole new people, because, after all, he was pushing 120, and that's asking a lot. <laughs> At any rate, he began to negotiate. Uh, did you catch that? Did you catch that? Um, we, we don't know Moses' motivations. We're not led let into his motivations. I'd like to think that it's his own fidelity and loyalty to his own people that spurred this whole interaction. But but maybe, as, as this guy points out, that this 120-year-old doesn't want to have a bunch of kids and be responsible for 
recreating all of Israelite society. So it might actually be self-interest. I, I don't read it like that, but that is a possibility we need to consider. So that is pretty funny. This, this, it's insightful stuff from a person who, I don't know if they're Christian, but uh, they're reading the Bible and taking the text as what the text says. Saying, look, God, you're God. You're holding all the cards. Whatever you want to do, you can do, and nobody can stop you. But you know, God, you can't just scratch that deal you've got with these people. You remember the covenant in which you promised them not only to take them out of slavery, but that they would practically inherit the earth. Yeah, I know, you're going to tell me that they broke their end of it all, so all bets are off. But it isn't that easy. You're in a spot. The news of this deal has leaked out all over the joint. The Egyptians, Philistines, Canaanites, everybody knows about it. But, as I said before, you're God. Go ahead and knock them off. What do you care if people are going to say, there goes God, you can't believe anything he tells you. You can't make a deal with him. His word isn't even worth the stone it's written on. Yeah, so one of one of the tears of his argument was, God, if you do this, you're going to look like a death cult God. All these people, they're going to see you and then associate you with just murdering your own people. And this is what is referenced later in the Bible. In Ezekiel, I believe, is the reference where he says that I did it for my own name's sake. So my name would not be profaned among the Gentiles. So Moses appeals to God's self-interest. God changes his mind. And what's the explicit reason? Later, we, we get explicitly, he did it for his own name's sake, so that his name is not profaned. Moses appealed to God's self-interest. God acted in a self-interest based on the interaction with Moses, based on his negotiating skills, based on his his positioning and manipulation of God. Remember that our guy said, yeah, that Moses outflanked God in this negotiation. He maneuvered, a skilled negotiator. But after all, you're God, and I suppose you can handle it. And the Lord was appeased from doing the evil which he had spoken against his people. Another maxim in effective communication is that people have to make their own decisions. It isn't just that Moses couldn't tell God what God should do. No organizer can tell a community either what to do. Much of the time, though, the organizer will have a pretty good idea of what the community should be doing, and he will want to suggest, maneuver, and persuade the community toward that action. He will not ever seem to tell the community what to do. Instead, he will use loaded questions. I was, I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and uh, he is in an interesting life situation in which he has one biological kid. His wife has a biological kid um, that was uh, through through artificial insemination of someone else. And so it's a weird situation. And he's like, you know, I kind of regret not having more kids. We've talked about adoption. I said, talk to your wife, go adopt a kid. You know, there's no, no buyer's remorse. People don't like regret having kids. So go, go work that out, get that adoption done. He's like, I kind of want a boy though. And uh, so if I talk to my wife about adoption, she might want a girl. I was like, you know, if you're going to convince this woman to adopt a boy, you have to make sure that it's her idea. And so you can't just come out and just say, here are the reasons we should have a boy. It should be like probing questions. You need to get her to come to the conclusion 
that she wants a boy uh, and not have it like forced on her. Because if, if someone's decisions are couched in terms of it's their idea, they're more likely to go along with it. They, people don't respond well to just forceful suggestions. Oh, we should do this. Even if it's the right thing to do, uh, they, they'll push against that. And so a skilled negotiator uh, makes sure that the person coming to the idea, it's your idea that, that you're throwing out there, but the person's manipulated into supporting your idea without knowing that the idea is originally stemming from yourself. And so that's what he's saying is going on here in Exodus 32. Moses is negotiating God into the position that Moses wants. For example, in a meeting on tactics where the organizer is convinced that tactic Z is the thing to do, organizer, what do you think we should do now? Community leader number one, I think we should do tactic X. Organizer, what do you think, leader number two? Leader number two, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Organizer. So David writes that God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. Yeah, so that's that's part of God's latent values. And one of the things that our friend here, our author, uh, it's like a Russian name, like uh, Alinsky, Saul Alinsky, uh, that he writes about is you don't appeal to someone's value set necessarily. Uh, sometimes you do get appeals to God's value set, like in the negotiation between Abraham and God for Sodom, but you don't get an appeal to God's value set here um, explicitly as, as much as you do in Genesis, but uh, there's an appeal to God's own self values, how something that will benefit God. So that's how Moses is, is uh, structuring this particular negotiation, which is really interesting. There are different approaches and different approaches work when it comes to God. God has value sets that you can appeal to, and God cares about those things. What about you, number three? Leader number three. Well, I don't know. It sounds good, but something worries me. What do you think, organizer? Organizer. The important thing is what you guys think. Uh, Christopher's asking, uh, do you think Alinsky read Lord of the Word first or Propaganda by Fritz Bernays first? Either way, I, I don't know. You have to tell me. What's the something that worries you? Leader number three. I don't know. It's something. Organizer. I got a hunch that I don't know, but I remember yesterday you and number one talking and explaining to me something about somebody who once tried something like Tactic X and it left him wide open because of this and that, so it didn't work, or something. Remember telling me about that, number one? Leader number one, who has been listening and now knows tactic X won't work. Sure, sure, I remember. Yeah, well, we all know X won't work. Organizer. Yeah, we also know that unless we put out all the things that won't work, we'll never get to the one that will. Right? Leader number one, fervently. Absolutely. And so the guided questioning goes on without anyone losing face or being left out of the decision making. Every weakness of every. Yeah, that's another very important thing in negotiation that a lot of times there's high value people who are involved in negotiation that even if they there's a win win deal that can be crafted, they will walk away if they feel insulted or demeaned or belittled. And so expert negotiator is going to make sure that everyone feels valued at the end, even 
even if uh, you lose some of the deal, even if you lose some of some of the trade off just to facilitate the trade, you need everyone walking away happy. You can't you can't have someone walking away angry at the deal, even if they they've benefited. So negotiation is is a subtle skill of manipulation, of reading people, understanding mentalities, and and steering them. That, that's that's actually the really interesting thing about the Bible is. I was telling my boys about the LXX today, the, the Septuagint, and the Septuagint tries to dehumanize God. And so where the Bible says, the Hebrew Bible says God is a man of war, the Septuagint will read he's a warlike God or something like that because it, they take man imagery and they strip it from God. To the writers of the Septuagint, God is not a man. But to the writers of the Bible, God is a man. God is a person. He's got a personality. He's got value sets. Uh, he he has emotions. He could think. He could process. He uses those emotions. You you could have an interaction with him in a meaningful way and uh, actually convince him to do things based on his own self interest, as we see a perfect example in Exodus thirty two. But God is a person within the Bible. God is a man. He thinks. He has thoughts. Uh, he functions like us within the Bible. Uh, what, what's what's that uh, Tyler Vela, his his slur against open theists that open theists see that uh, uh, Yahweh is just a mega Zeus or something like that? How about this? That man is in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. So all you have to do to see God is look at mankind, and you have a picture into the soul of God, God's thoughts, God's character, God's actions, and the Bible makes a lot more sense when you read it in that light. That, that God is a person and God can interact and God has thoughts and desires and value structures and can gain value. There is a, a book I was reading. I'm going to be re reviewing a, the book on Clark Pinnock's life that some summates his theology. And even him, he wants to try to maintain this, oh, God is complete within the Trinity. He doesn't need anything outside himself. These are These are weird value sets that we don't find in the Bible. Within the Bible, God gains from outside himself. God has values exterior to himself that getting them makes him happier than he was before. This idea of completeness in that he doesn't need anything external to himself, it's, that's, that's not a biblical value. God is a person. God has values. God has desires. Hebraic Megazeus, uh, Christopher Greer writes. Yeah, um, in in the Hebrew religion, it, he is he is a a, a cult, a, a warlord cult god of the Israelites. Th this is this is a war cult god. That that's who we see Yahweh as in the Bible. And so there's an absurd notion going around that we need to reread this Hebraic war chieftain god as some sort of Neoplatonic singularity. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> all right, we're going to hit play. I, I don't know if he goes back to the Bible at all, but uh, we'll, we'll just kind of hear this point out. Every proposed tactic is probed by questions. Eventually, someone suggests tactic Z. And again, through questions, its positive features emerge. Yeah, Roddy, he reinforces the point that we're making. He says he used to work in management. I always found it's useful to convince people to do what I wanted them to do, but leave them feeling like it was their idea in the first place. <laughs> oh, 
what did I do the other day? Uh, I had some people that were working for me and then when, and I would give all the suggestions. I I'd tell the entire team what to do and, and how to do it. And then when I had to su summarize the whole thing for the, the entire group or whatever, I gave them all the credit. I was like, oh, my team innovated this and, and they decided this. And, and I gave them all the credit. I didn't take any for myself. And uh, they were they were left feeling like superstars, even though I did all the innovating. I told them exactly how to do it. I just gave them all the credit and they loved it. They loved it. And it is decided on. Is this manipulation? Certainly, just as a teacher manipulates and no less even a Socrates. As time goes on and education proceeds, the leadership becomes increasingly sophisticated. The organizer recedes from the local circle of decision makers. His response to questions about what he thinks becomes a non-directive counter-question. What do you think? His job becomes one of weaning the group away from any dependency upon him. Then his job is done. While the organizer proceeds on the basis of questions, the community leaders always regard his judgment above their own. They believe that he knows his job. He knows the right tactics. That's why he is their organizer. The organizer. Yeah, we just finished also. Uh, I, I had my kids listen to the conquest of Mexico about Hernan Cortez's uh, conquest of Mexico. And he was basically a godlike figure within the eyes of the natives. He was a liberator of all these subservient tribes to the Aztecs who, who rallied around him to help overthrow the Aztecs. And they saw him as this godlike figure to mediate all their disputes. And he was seen as an impartial mediator. So they'd bring all their problems to him and he would just sit and he'd listen to their problems and make decisions about it. And so I, it's, it's this passive thing that he's talking about where you're just not out there just forcing your will here or there. You're, you're, you're just taking input and then making considerations and, and divvying out impartial justice. Uh, so, yeah. Good, good individual, uh, Hernan Cortez. Everyone hates him in history, but uh, he's a good guy. Let's say <laughs> communist leaders so close as what he writes. Uh, Greer does, Gear does, but oh, uh, I think we're. I don't think he's going to be talking about Exodus thirty-two too much anymore. But I did find that was very interesting. Now this book is very good for understanding how people work. So there, there's there's doctrinal things in Christianity knowing certain information, certain facts, and uh, at what those facts mean and how those facts work together. But then there's arts of persuasion, organization. There, there's practical ways to, to build coalitions. And that's what the God is Open program is about. It's about building coalitions. And so even if there's people that I don't agree with on very specific issues, we were able to unite and create a community along some shared values in order to uh, get, give open theism broader acceptance. And realizing that there are those differences, we can put those aside and work on our common goals. It, it, God is Open is meant to be one of these organizations that are described here in Rules for Radicals. How do you create social change? Well, you got to build a coalition. You got to press for social change. You got to fight against the current powers. And so that could be the Calvinist establishments. How do you fight against the Calvinistic establishment? Uh, humor, this is highlighted within rules, radicals. 
rules for radicals. Humor is and memeing, memeing and and degrading these Calvinists is is a great way to tear down their their presumed superiority when you make fun of them, make light of them. Uh, point out things accurately and uh, that uh, normal people can digest. It can't be a Calvinist meme that nobody understands because it's it's so obscure that and doesn't make any sense. Like uh, whoever's will triumphs is the stronger person. What I no one no one knows what these what what they're doing here. But rules for radical I radicals I do suggest listening to this audiobook. It's a short seven hours. And so I don't know if you got have a seven hours mowing your lawn or something like that. Or on the way to church in the mornings or on the way to work might be good. Or at work if you could manage that. But uh that's about all I got to say tonight. I just thought this was a very interesting passage, especially how how clearly he reads what's going on and how much credit that he does give Moses in, in the negotiation. And this is coming from an individual who is a skilled negotiator, who understands human psychology, what's going on, the deeper interplay within the story itself. I was showing my kids, uh, the same time I was talking to them about the Septuagint, I was showing them a Christine Hayes Yale Lecture University about the Bible. And she said, the stories within the Bible are real stories. This is not sugar-coated. They're not writing heliographies about all these people within the Bible that, oh, they're so perfect and they never did anything wrong. These are about real people with real character motivations. And that's what gives beauty and depth to the text. Moses is being real here. Uh, it's not a fake th thing where they're just all play acting. Oh, I know God has everything known beforehand. And there's nothing I could really do to convince him. And it, that's it's not what's going on here. This is deep internal character conflict that we're reading in the Bible. These are real stories about real people. And they're, they're not caricatures of people. <laughs> um, some random Russian guys just putting nonsense in the chat. So that's interesting. But yeah, it is an inter interesting take on Exodus 32. I am also reminded of, there's that book about movies. And they cover Exodus 32 as well. And uh, his point within that book is, we, we can't just pretend this away what's going on here. We can't just pretend that God knows the future. This is just a movie writer talking about how scenes are constructed. Uh, if, if you're recreating the Exodus 32 scene, you're not going to be writing it with no normal, nominal, theological issues in mind. Uh, common, modern notions of who God is, you're not going to be importing those into an Exodus 32 scene. That scene, like all the other scenes, needs to stand alone in its context. You can't override it from outside itself with concerns that are that are not found within the immediate context. But Reels for Radicals, it does that. And uh, very interesting, interesting book. I would suggest reading it. Well, with that, well, we'll probably cut off there about 30 minutes. Just a quick little pop in, pop out. But uh, thanks, everyone, for showing up. And uh, have a nice week.